All right. Well, we're in the book of Philippians, starting a new series. Uh, I will give a little bit of background because I think it's uh, helpful when you think about the book of Philippians and, and really what the main theme of the book of Philippians is. Uh, you will hear people say a lot, and it's true that Philippians is the epistle of joy. It's Paul's letter of joy. And when you understand uh, the context in which Paul is writing this letter, I think that that becomes even more meaningful. The Apostle Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. He's in prison in Rome, and he writes a series of letters from prison known as the prison epistles. Uh, and so he's not under the best circumstances uh, when he writes this epistle of joy. And when we read the, the book of Philippians, what we see is not just that Paul is admonishing us or exhorting us to be joyful. He does do that, but even more so, what we see is joy on display. We, we, we can sense it in his writing, this hope and this excitement and this optimism, this joy that spills over into his pen as he writes this letter. And the, the question is, what is his secret? How does Paul manage to maintain joy, to possess joy, even in the midst of such difficult circumstances? And we are taught from Philippians that what Paul has learned is he has learned to have a joy that is not connected to his circumstances. You know, for a lot of us, this is the, the great struggle for many of us, we, we struggle with having a joy that is connected to our circumstances. So when our circumstances go up, our joy goes up. When our circumstances go down, our joy goes down. But here's what Paul says in Philippians 4.11. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That word content means satisfied or full. He is not wanting because of his circumstances. Even when his world seemed to be falling apart and circumstances were at their worst, Paul could have joy because his joy wasn't tied to this world or his circumstances. Paul's joy and satisfaction came from knowing Christ. Jesus was his great treasure. This is why he would say things like, I consider all things as lost. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Or having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul was always rich in his own eyes. Not because of material possessions or because of his circumstances. But because he had the pearl of great prize, Jesus himself. And so we see this joy spilling over into this letter to the Philippians. And what we see here in chapter 1 in, in our text is we see it in his love and his affection for the church. This is what our, our, our text is really about this morning. It is Paul's joy, his optimism, his excitement, his love spilling over in his words to the church. In spite of all the church's imperfections and shortcomings, in spite of all the issues that Paul had to deal with. Paul loved the church. And so, this morning, this is where we're going. We're going to look at Paul's love for the church. One thing that I think is important to remember 
is that Paul loved the church not because he was able to sit down and muster up his own affection or not because of some willpower on his own part to overlook all the things that were going wrong and to remain uh, positive and, and, and compassionate towards God's people. Paul loved the church because as we see in verse 8, he wasn't loving with his own love. Verse 8 says this, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is the love of Christ within Paul. It is the love of Christ within Paul that is spilling over into his relationships with others, into his affection for the church. Paul loves the church because he has the love of Christ in him, and Christ loves the church. Christ loves the church. His bride even with all its imperfections and shortcomings. You know, when you look back in the pages of of Scripture, all the way to the beginning of time, we see God's committed love for His people. There is this pattern all the way back to Adam and Eve. And, And here's the pattern that we see. God calls a people unto Himself. God blesses His people. The people rebel. God brings them to repentance. God blesses his people. The people rebel. God brings them to repentance and restores them. And then he blesses his people. They rebel. And this cycle just continues over and over. We see it most evidently in the narrative of the nation of Israel. But what we're learning as we read these stories, what we're learning as we read this narrative is this. That although God's people are never perfectly faithful to God. God's love and commitment and faithfulness to his people never changes. His love never fluctuates. It's never exhausted. God continues to remain faithful to his people, to the church, in sickness and in health, in good times, in bad, for richer, for poorer. And you say, those are are marriage vows. Yes, Why? We hear in Scripture, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? Unconditionally, unendingly, in spite of weaknesses and flaws. And look, I I know in our day and age, this doesn't sit right with a lot of people. There are a lot of people who will profess Christ but reject his church. And a lot of these people at one point in time attended church regularly and there was some sin perceived or real or offense that turned them off to the church. They experienced something that rubbed them the wrong way. And so they've said, you know what, I'm I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. The church faces a lot of criticism from people who were once involved in the church. And let's face it, a lot of that criticism is legitimate. And we have to be humble and acknowledge that. But the question is, what is the right response in light of the church's imperfections? In light of people's imperfections? What do we do? Do we we turn our back on the church and say, I'm just going to go Lone Ranger and do it myself? Do, Do we just go on without Christian community? The answer is no. Even 
with its, its flaws and imperfections, the church is still the bride of Christ. The church is still God's instrument for carrying the gospel to the nations. It is, it is still God's design and desire that we experience growth and fellowship in the context of Christian community. So God loves his church. He has not given up on his church and neither should we. And so this is what we see with Paul here in the opening chapter in light of all of the things that are weighing on his mind and his circumstances. Paul loves the church and he expresses that love in two ways that we're going to look at this morning. Paul's two expressions of love. The first thing he does, Paul expresses his love through thanksgiving. He expresses his love through thanksgiving. He starts by giving thanks. And here's the first thing. We're going to dig into this a little bit that we see about the way Paul gives thanks, the lessons that we learn. First is that thanksgiving should be frequent. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. So right off the bat, Paul expresses his gratitude for the church. And he says, I do this regularly. I do this Always, as often as he prays. And there is something incredibly beneficial that we learn here about developing a habit. And, 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 and you could even say a discipline of thanksgiving in our hearts. In general, but also as Paul applies it, as we pray for the church and those in the church, as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have a habit and a discipline of thanking God. Because here's the thing. People are far from perfection, and therefore the church is far from perfection, and it's really easy to get preoccupied with all the faults that we see, with all the things that are going wrong, with all the things that we don't agree with. It's really easy for the ugly to eclipse the beautiful. And what thanksgiving does is it keeps this from happening. It sends us on a search for the good, for the graces of God that we are seeing in our midst and in people's lives. We focus on that which is beautiful and that which is praiseworthy. It is, it is choosing to look for and acknowledge the good things that God is doing. And so Paul says, I do this often. I make a habit of doing this. Paul knew there would always be evidences of God's grace that he could seek out and acknowledge God for. And listen, the churches that were under Paul's care had major, major issues. And Paul's not turning a blind eye to those things by saying, I'm only looking at the good things. He's just saying, I'm not going to allow the problems to completely define my perspective of what God is doing here. I'm not going to allow the challenges and the hang-ups in the church to completely cloud my perspective so that I'm no longer able to see the goodness of God at work. You think about the church at Corinth, for example. This is a church that had major, major problems. They had deep divisions. They were being influenced by worldly philosophers. They had rampant sexual sin. They had a, a man fornicating with his, his mother-in-law that was accepted in the church. They were taking each other to court. They were abusing the spiritual gifts. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were getting it wrong in so many ways. And yet when Paul 
writes to the church at Corinth, he's not wringing his hands in frustration in the first paragraph saying, you know what, this just isn't working. It's a failed experiment. You just go your separate ways. I was wrong to even try to put this together. No, he doesn't do that. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. Look at his words to this deeply flawed church at Corinth. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is beautiful. He says, I thank God for you. When? Always. Even in the midst of this horrible situation, Paul is still able to identify the good things that God is doing and thank him for it. And it's the first thing that he does. He starts by giving thanks before he does anything else. And I think that's really important because here's the thing. Our minds I know mine, and I I know that this is is human nature. Our minds don't usually just gravitate natural to the things that are going right and to the beautiful things and the good things. We tend to be much more preoccupied with the things that are going wrong and what's falling apart and what's not working the way we think it should. And so this is why we have to be deliberate and intentional about thanksgiving about taking time to look for and acknowledge the things that God is doing, the evidences of his grace among us. So the first question this morning is, are we doing that? Are we we making a habit of thanksgiving specifically when it comes to how we pray for our church and how we pray for one another? Are we thanking him regularly for those that he has put in our lives, for this community of grace that he has placed us in, where we can experience growth and and, and encouragement and sanctification? And so the first thing that Paul shows us, his first expression of love for the church is seen in that his thanksgiving is frequent. The second thing we learn from Paul's thanksgiving is that thanksgiving leads to joy. He says this, we'll tack on the rest of verse 3 and 4 there. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I said earlier, Philippians is the epistle of joy. And this is the first time in Philippians where we actually see the word joy being used. And, And right here we see something very important in the connection that is drawn between thanksgiving and joy. You see, Paul had learned to be joyful in every situation, but here's why. Because he had learned to be thankful in every situation. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 puts it this way. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Listen, when we are choosing to, to search out the good things that God is doing, meditate on the goodness of God at work in ourselves and in others, our countenance will follow. We will find ourselves becoming more joyful. 
But the opposite is also true. When we fail to give thanks, when we allow our perspective to be dominated by by the evil that we see, the sin, the, the, the faults that we see, our countenance will follow. We will find naturally that joy is elusive. And so thanksgiving is critical to sustaining and nurturing joy. And this not just affects the joy that we have in the midst of our circumstances. It affects the joy that we have when we think about and pray for people. Thanksgiving makes our heart tender and and more affectionate and loving towards people. It's really hard to hold a grudge against someone or bitterness against someone that you're thanking God for regularly. Because thanksgiving naturally warms our heart towards others. And so thanksgiving has affected Paul's countenance in prayer. He says, I make my prayer with all joy. He has a smile on his face when he thinks of the church and when he thinks of those in the church. And it's my desire this morning that we would too. That when we pray, that we would pray with a smile. Not because everything's perfect. Not because everything's going right. But because you know that God is at work and we see evidences of his grace among us. And so thanksgiving should be frequent. We need to remember that thanksgiving leads to joy. And third, we learn that thanksgiving should be specific. One thing I notice about Paul In all of his letters, he never just says, I thank God for you, and leaves it there. He always says why he's thankful. And there is something very beneficial to being specific when we are thankful. Look, it's easy. It is really easy to just name the object of your gratitude. I'm thankful for Matt. I'm thankful for this podium. I'm thankful for lights. It's really easy to just name the object of our thanksgiving. You know why? Because it doesn't actually require that we've ever given any thought to why we're actually thankful. It's much more difficult if someone says why, because that means you've actually searched out. That means you've actually gone and looked for the evidences of grace, the specific evidences of grace of God at work in someone's life the blessing that they are to to yourself and others. See, when we're specific in our thanksgiving, it pushes us to look for and to acknowledge the unique ways God is working in people and using them to be a blessing. It, It makes gratitude personal and real. You know, as I was praying this week, I I really tried to implement this. As I would pray for someone, instead of just saying, Lord, thank you for so-and-so, to take the extra step of saying, Lord, thank you for so-and-so, and then beginning to search out, what is it that I'm so grateful for? What is it God's doing in their life? How is it that God is using them? And, and I'll tell you what, with every person that I, that I prayed for, I found that there were so many reasons to be thankful for that person that I would have never thought of if I would have just remained up at the surface and never really taken that deeper dive to say, what is it exactly I see God doing? What is it exactly that, that, that God is using them for? And I'll tell you what, when we communicate gratitude to others, this is true as well. I, I've had people come to me 
and, and maybe you have too, in conversation, I, I thank God for you. And, and that's, that's fine. That's, that's all well. I thank God for you. I thank God for you. But I'll tell you what, it is, it is always more meaningful when someone says, I thank God for you because I see God doing this and this and this in your life or, or because, you know, you've been a blessing in this because it shows that they have actually thought about and understand and have something tangible that their gratitude is rooted in. It's so much deeper. It's so much more specific. And so Paul says he's thankful, but then he talks about why he's thankful. He gives specifics, and the first thing he says in verse 5 is this. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's rooted in something very specific the Philippians did. When Paul left Macedonia on one of his missionary journeys, he says none of the other churches stepped up to help provide for his physical needs and support him. But the Philippians did. They stepped up and they, they supported him. They answered the call. And he talks about this later in the same letter to the, to the Philippians. So he's saying, I thank God because you have partnered in the gospel. Paul is the missionary. He's the mouthpiece. But they are partners in the gospel all the same through the support that they offered for him. They have the same gospel vision. They have the same desire to see the gospel spread. And they generously provided for him. You know, this alone was reason for Paul to give thanks. And it is for us as well. He was grateful, he said, because you are shooting for the ultimate end goal that I'm shooting for. You have a passion to see the advancement of the gospel, and so do I. We are partners in that respect. You know, I, I, I thought about that, and I thought about how interesting it is so many times we see Christians criticizing other Christians or churches criticizing other churches, failing to realize that most of us are really, in the end, after the same thing. To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and there should be room in our hearts to thank God for anyone who is partnering on that mission. Anyone who, is, who has invested their life into seeing gospel advancement. The second reason Paul is thankful is found in verse 6. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that the Philippians' service to God is an unfinished service. He knows that God's work in their life at this point is an unfinished work. But he can be thankful and he can be joyful now because he knows that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. It is reason enough for him to give thanks. He is confident that God does not abandon the work of his hands. The same God who saved them will sanctify them and continue his work in their lives. And I'll tell you what, this also is a great reason for us to be thankful. We are all on this path of sanctification. We are all an unfinished work. Nobody has it completely together. We are going to fail God and we are going to fail one another. But our confidence is this, that God will continue the work that he started and bring it to completion. When we find ourselves frustrated with the church or with our brothers or sisters in Christ, we remind ourselves God is still sanctifying us and we can be joyful and grateful 
because we know that he will finish that work. And so Paul shows us that loving the church involves thanksgiving, being grateful. Secondly, and we won't spend as much time on, on this point, he teaches us that loving the church involves prayer. Paul makes a shift in verse 9 from thanksgiving to actually making petition for this church, praying for them. And as I said earlier, just as it's difficult to be resentful or bitter towards someone that you're thanking God for, the same is true for prayer. It's hard to maintain bitterness or resentment for someone that you are lifting up in prayer. You know why? Because true prayer involves wanting what is best for someone. It means we are on their side, asking God to do his good work in them, to bless them with good things. And so Paul's prayer is a further expression of his love for the church. He, he desires and wants to see them grow and mature in the faith. And it highlights one way that we also can love the church, by praying for one another, by praying for the church. There is so much packed in to these last several verses that there's no way I can dive deep and, and really uh, pull out everything that is there. And as we read it, I think you'll see that, that there's not a wasted word and it's so rich and there are so many things that Paul asks for. But there's one thing I want to focus on. One thing about his prayer for the church that, that really stood out that I think we can take away from this and it's this, to aim your prayer at sanctification. To aim your prayer at sanctification. And maybe you don't know what that word means. It means it's a, a word that is used often in Christianity. And it's just, it refers to the process of spiritual growth through which we come, uh, become more and more like Jesus. Paul aims his prayer at sanctification. Several years ago, I read a book, very popular book, some of you probably have read it, called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. There is a quote from that book that stood out to me at the time and has stuck with me, and I think it's a, a good quote. He says in his book this, he says, God is far more interested in who you are than in what you do. We are human beings not human doings. I love that. His point is that God is far more concerned about what's happening on the inside, who we are becoming, than what's happening on the outside. And the reason is because as God transforms the inside, here's the reality, behavior will follow suit. Behavior really is just the manifestation of what's going on in here. The being motivates the doing. And we see that in Paul's prayer for the church here. He is focused exclusively on their growth and their sanctification. What is happening inside of them? He wants them to becoming more and more like Jesus, knowing that that will impact and affect everything else. Because I'll tell you what, it gets really easy to get caught up in, in praying for or against behavior, doesn't it? We pray for people to start doing this or stop doing that rather than aiming at the heart, knowing that the heart, as Scripture says, is the wellspring of life. 
And everything a person does flows from there. And so Paul aims at transformation, and we see it in his final words. We'll look at that now. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he prays for sanctification, and in doing so, he mentions five key things, five key areas where he says, I pray that God will give you growth, will give you increase. And those areas are love, knowledge, discernment, purity, and the fruit of righteousness. Love because God is love, and anyone who loves God and who grows in Christ will grow in love. Knowledge that they would better know God and know the will of God. Discernment, which is the ability to make distinctions between right and wrong and truth and error. Purity, that their desires and conduct would grow less and less like the old sinful man and more and more like Jesus. And then lastly, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Notice he doesn't call it the works of righteousness. It's fruit. It's something that is produced in us as we abide in Christ. We have no righteousness of our own, as Scripture tells us. Yet as we abide in Christ and we are transformed by Him, what does happen is we begin to bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And so if you want to know how to pray for sanctification, how to pray for growth and maturity in the body, this passage is a great guide. Increase our love. Deepen our knowledge of your will. Give us greater discernment, more purity. Let us be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from abiding in Christ. And then let's not forget that last sentence down at the bottom. At the end it says, to the glory and praise of God. Sanctification matters. Why? Because it brings glory to God. God is more concerned about who we are becoming than what we're doing. See, many times we think it's what I'm doing that brings glory to God. What do I have to do to bring glory to God? He says sanctification, that process of transformation in the life of a Christian, that that itself is to the praise and glory of God. And so this morning, let's remember to cultivate a love for one another for the church global, for the church local, and for the individual members who make up the church. Let us remember to be thankful and prayerful, remembering this, that God is committed to his people and that he who has began a great work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much because there are so many good things that you are doing in the earth, in your church, global, Lord, in this local body of believers here in Escondido and in our individual lives. Lord, we repent of so often failing to acknowledge and see how your spirit is at work and 
see the, the blessings that you are pouring out that sometimes we, we are unaware of, Lord. God, I pray that you would allow our eyes to be open, Lord, as we spend time with you in thanksgiving, Lord. Open to seeing the good things that you're doing, Lord. Seeing the beauty, seeing those things that are praiseworthy. Keep our perspectives from becoming so clouded with what's going wrong. So clouded with the, the evil that we can't see the good, Lord. God, I pray that you would be with our, our church here and sanctify us, Lord. Continue to grow us, Lord, and, and change us. That we may more and more each day Reflect the image of your Son, Lord, to your glory. In Jesus' name.